There's so much going on this uh, Christmas season I'm excited about that we, we didn't even have time to put into the announcements or in the bulletin there, but wanted to let you know about a few extra giving opportunities. I know a lot of you this time of year are looking for opportunities to bless kids or maybe bless the homeless, different things. We had this last Thursday our first FCC night of manning the Victorville Warming Shelter. Uh, Glenn Ehler and his team just did a wonderful job, uh, and so one and all, thank you, those of you that were there uh, during that 13 hours or so of the warming shelter on Thursday night. It was the rainy night, uh, and so people coming off the streets, I think we ministered about 30 uh, different homeless men, women, and children on that night. So uh, those of you that will continue to help us on Thursdays, we thank you for that. Uh, one giving opportunity we have along with that warming shelter is if you, if you would like to provide a meal uh, for 30 to 40 people, that warming shelter will be running most nights uh, seven days a week until uh, the end of February or early March. If you'd like to help with a meal, you can talk to Glenn Ayler about that. A couple other giving opportunities. Last week, uh, Gabby, uh, one of our girls in our children's ministries here, brought a bunch of stuffed animals to give to other kids. And so that got us thinking, we are going to build a plush mountain. Who knows what a plush mountain is? If you've ever been to the Disney store, oftentimes in the back of the store they have what they call plush mountain. The stuffed animals are built into a pyramid. And so what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is collect uh, gently used or new stuffed animals that we can build a plush mountain with. And for our Angel Tree gift giveaway in two weeks, we want to not only bless the kids of prisoners with a Christmas gift, but allow them to choose one of those stuffed animals. So if you have some gently used or would like to buy a new stuffed animal to contribute, that's another wonderful way uh, to give. Also, I found out that Rose of Sharon Pregnancy Center is looking uh, for gently used or new coats and jackets for babies and toddlers. So if you have a little jacket or a little coat for a four-year-old or younger, uh, that's a real blessing for Rose of Sharon. So those are a few giving opportunities we wanted to let you know about this month. This is such a wonderful time of the year to give back to those that are in need. I want to share a quote with you at the start of this sermon today. It's a, a quote that's attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not he ever really said this. Uh, but regardless... A lot of people believe he said this. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Whether or not Gandhi actually ever said these words, you, if you go on the Internet and do a quick search, you will find these words over and over and over again. It's quoted so often because there's millions of non-Christians out there who believe these words. And at the same time, there are millions of Christians who quote Gandhi with this quote here because millions of Christians are convicted by these words. Now, let's bring it a little closer to home. If you were to go and ask one of your non-Christian friends or family members this question, I want to see how you think they would answer this question. Here it is. What about Christians drives you up the wall? Go ahead and shout out a few answers. If you were to ask a non-Christian family member or friend or classmate or coworker, what about Christians drives you up the wall? How would they respond? They're hypocrites. What else? They're too nah, Christians aren't pushy. Get out of here. Yeah, pushy, hypocrites, what else? They're what? I thought you said gentle. I said, wow, that's a great criticism. I don't mind that one. Judgmental. Okay. Any others that come to mind? 
Intolerant. Big one. Others? What was that, Peggy? <laughs> Christians are nothing, never mind. Sometimes. Did I miss any others out there? Their anger? Are Christians angry people sometimes? I want to put three on the screen. Here are three of the most common ones, and uh, I think you guys have probably already mentioned all three of these. These are three of the common complaints about Christians. Christians are judgmental. Someone said that. Christians are hypocritical. And this third one, I think, stings also. Christians are really unloving. Now, those are kind of sobering because that's 180 degrees from how Jesus Christ actually told us we should be, right? Jesus told us we should be non-judgmental. He told us we should not be hypocrites. He told us we should be more loving than anyone on the planet because we have that agape kind of love. When it comes down to it, there's a lot of accusations against Christians that are leveled against Christ's followers that are more grounded in reality than we'd like to admit. But as we continue this morning to dive into Luke chapter 6, that sermon we know as the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus Christ will continue to teach us how we can and should live, not only to give ourselves a higher opinion by non-Christians, but most importantly to be the salt and light that He's called us to be so that we lead the world to Him. Because more than anything else, this world needs Christ And if the world looks at Christians and sees something that's 180 degrees from what Christ stands for, chances are they won't follow Christ. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37, as we uh, look at part 2 this morning of this message, Upside Down Kingdom Living. Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 6 today. And uh, we will take a a brief break after today from our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to have a three-part Christmas series starting next Sunday. Uh, I have a surprise I'm working on for you for the final Sunday of the year. And so uh, we'll take about a month off from the book of Luke for the Christmas season. But we want to finish chapter 6 today and finish strong with the last of this teaching on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Upside Down Kingdom Living, Part 2. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have today to dive into your word. We pray that it would honor you. We pray, O God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you want to teach us. And Lord, we apologize. We are sorry. We repent of living lives in many ways that were 180 degrees from the life that you have called us to live. So wake us up this morning, Lord. Wake us up. May we not live right side up like everyone else around us who could care less about you. May we live these upside down lives that you've called us to live. Lives that are countercultural, Lives that are counterintuitive. Lives that are transformational and revolutionary because they're lives just like the one that you lived for the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, last Sunday, as we tackled the first half of Jesus' topsy-turvy teaching, I, I skipped over one of the most important verses in the passage. And I want to spend some time on that one verse at the start of this message today. It's Luke chapter 6, verse 31. So look at that verse again. We call it the golden rule. In the NIV, it reads, Do to others as you would have them do to you. Is there anyone in the room who has never heard that golden rule? We've all heard it over and over, haven't we? Do unto others as you would have them do 
to you. I like how the message paraphrases the golden rule. Uh, The message paraphrases Jesus' words this way. Here is a simple rule of thumb for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. That's pretty good, isn't it? Some people paraphrase it this way. Treat others as you wish to be treated. We have heard the golden rule spoken over and over so many times over the years. It's been quoted so often, but we tend to forget how revolutionary the golden rule really is. Interestingly, Jesus didn't originate the golden rule. It existed in some form or another for hundreds of years before Jesus spoke it here in the Sermon on the Plain. A few quick examples. Hillel, the Jewish rabbi, summarized the Old Testament law this way. He said, What is hateful to thee, do not to another. That is the whole Torah, and all else is explanation. The Jewish philosopher Aphilo said it this way, What you hate to suffer, do not do to anyone else. Isocrates, a Greek orator, said this, What things make you angry when you suffer them at the hands of others, do not you do to other people. And then finally, the Chinese philosopher Confucius said it this way, What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Now, I gave you four quotes there from some ancient philosophers and teachers who were pre-Christ. Did you notice something in similar with their versions of the golden rule? Something that was in similar, similar with all four was that they were all spoken in the negative. All four of those ancient philosophers and teachers were saying, if there is something you do not want someone to do to you, do not do it to them the negative form of the golden rule. And if you look back at these ancient philosophers and teachers before Christ that gave some variation of the golden rule, the majority of the time it was in the negative. And what Jesus does when he comes on the scene is he takes this well-known proverb, don't do things to others that you do not want them to do to you, and he flipped it and spoke it in the positive. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And many of us would look at that and say, big deal. What's the difference? There's really a big, big difference. Think of it this way. You've got a neighbor, and you hate his guts. You can't stand that guy. The negative form of the command says, if you've got a neighbor that drives you up the wall, a neighbor that you can't stand... Under no circumstances are you to go over to his house and knock on his front door, and when he opens the door, punch him in the nose. Do not walk over to his house and punch him in the nose, and don't flip him the bird. I won't demonstrate that one. That's the negative form of the command. What does Jesus say? If you have a neighbor that drives you up the wall, if you've got a neighbor that you cannot stand, a guy you hate his guts, under no circumstances are you to treat him poorly, but take it the next step. I want you to go over to that neighbor's house and mow his lawn. I want you to go over to that neighbor's house and offer to feed his dog while he's on vacation. That ugly mutt? Yeah, that ugly mutt. I want you to do for him what you would like him to do for you. 
It's a much tougher, much stricter form of the command. In the church, the negative form of the command, if you've got that one Christian that gets on your last nerve, and you've decided, I'm just going to stay away from that Christian at my church, and I'm just not going to deal with them, that is following the negative form of the command. You're not going up and yelling in their face. You're not going up and telling them off on a Sunday morning during the greeting time. The positive form of the command, Jesus says, you go over to that Christian and you take communion to them. You go over to that Christian and you offer to help them out with their electric bill. You go over to that Christian and you take the initiative to be a blessing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is an absolutely revolutionary command. And most ancient teachers and philosophers did not dare speak it in the positive. But Jesus dared to go where almost no one else had gone, dared to gone before. Boy, that was terrible English. Sometimes I got it and sometimes I don't. <laughs> that was one of the don'ts. Okay, so friends, if we could simply carry out this revolutionary golden rule, don't you think it would dramatically change many non-Christians' opinions of us? If we could simply carry out this golden rule to do to others what we would have them do to you, it would revolutionize how non-Christians view us. We like to be treated with kindness, but we're not viewed as being very kind to others. We like to be cut some slack when we screw up, but we don't cut others slack when they screw up. We like to be treated with respect and an open mind, but we don't treat atheists with respect and an open mind. We so often don't treat the Mormons who knock on our front door with respect and an open mind. The Jehovah's Witnesses were particularly bad about treating them with respect and an open mind. How on earth can we be viewed in a positive light by this sin-cursed world when we can't even consistently obey the golden rule? Friends, if we could carry this out, how different things would be. It would transform non-Christians' perceptions of us instead of saying Christians are so mean-spirited, Christians are so judgmental, Christians are so narrow-minded, non-Christians who know us would begin saying, I've never met someone more kind than that Christian over there. I've never met anyone more loving than that Christian woman over there. I've ne never met anyone more open-minded than that Christian brother over there. Let's take a look at verse 37 as we dive into some new material today. Verse 37, do not judge, Jesus says, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. This is one of the most misunderstood and abused teachings of Jesus. Many people misunderstand it, thinking if we call out sin as sin then we're being judgmental. Have you ever heard someone say, don't judge me? Pretty common thing to say these days, isn't it? Don't judge me. Well, we like to say that when someone begins to tell something about our behavior or our actions that convict us a bit. And so it's almost like we treat that statement, don't judge me, like a silver bullet. If I throw that out in the midst of a conversation, it'll stop them dead in their tracks and they'll stop pointing out something I might be doing that's self-destructive and harmful to others. This command of Jesus is probably 
quoted more by non-Christians than it is by Christians. Some use it to try to shut other Christians down in their tracks when they're pointing out something that the Bible says is wrong. But it's important to know what this verse means and what it doesn't mean. This verse does not mean what many people think it means. Do not judge does not mean do not point out sin. Jesus has commanded us as his followers to call out sin as sin and to warn others about the destructiveness of sin. But Jesus has not called us to sit in judgment of others. So he's called us to call out sin as sin, to speak when the Bible says to speak about something that is against God, but at the same time to never sit in judgment of others. And here's why. When we sit in judgment of others... We are arrogantly taking upon ourselves a position that only rightfully belongs to God. God is the only rightful judge, amen? God is the only one who is perfectly holy. He's the only one who is perfectly righteous. He is the only one who is qualified to be a perfect, unbiased judge. And so the Bible makes it clear we are not to sit in judgment of others. That's God's job. It's not ours. So when we sit in judgment of others, we are walking on very thin ice, basically claiming to have God's authority to judge. And God doesn't appreciate that very much, does He? The second problem with judging others is that it comes across as incredibly cold and heartless. It's one of the reasons non-Christians have beefs with us as Christians. Because we come across sometimes so cold. Sometimes we come across so condemning. Sometimes we come across so self-righteous or holier than now. That's the problem with assuming the position of a judge. It's almost impossible to do that in a loving manner. Only God pulls that off flawlessly. The message puts this do not judge command this way. Don't pick on people. Isn't that good? Don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures. Don't criticize their faults unless, of course, you want the same treatment. We would all do well to remember these words. Don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures. Don't criticize their faults. So, Jesus has called us to speak the truth, to call out sin as sin, but He has called us to do it in love. We've talked about this in the past. Uh, as Christians, we tend to make a one of two mistakes when it comes to speaking the truth and, and, uh, and uh, also uh, being loving to those around us. Either... We make the first mistake, which is to speak the truth, but we do it in an incredibly cold and condemning way. We've all known Christians like that, right? They speak the truth, but man, they do it in a cruel way. Sometimes Christians come across as so judgmental because they're speaking the truth, but there's no love in it. And then on the other hand, it's become very popular in recent years among many preachers even, and in many churches, to speak in a very loving way, a very edifying way, but they're not speaking the truth. And so that's why in Ephesians, Paul says, make sure you speak the truth in love. That's hard. It's not hard to speak the truth. It's not hard to speak in a loving way. What's difficult is speaking the truth in love. But that's what Jesus Christ has called us to do. Not to judge, not to be condemning. We are to speak the truth and to... Tell people what God's Word says, but do it in a loving and non-condemning or judgmental way. Verse 38, Jesus goes on to say, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. 
for with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. This is an interesting verse that all of Jesus' readers there in Israel in his day would have understood what he was talking about. Because normally when you went to the market to buy some grain for your family, you'd take some sort of basket or bucket with you. But sometimes someone would, like us at times, make a detour to the marketplace. They forgot to bring their bucket that morning or, you know, they get a call on their cell phone from the missus and say, hey, can you bring home some grain? Whatever it was, they weren't prepared to go to the market and get grain. So how would they get that grain home? They can't just put it in their hand and walk home with it. So what they would do is the front part of their robe, the front part of that tunic, they would roll it up from the bottom edge. And when they did that, it made a nice little pouch. And so the guy at the market... Once they paid for it, they would hike it up and they would just pour the grain into that front fold of their tunic or their cloak. And they would just walk home like that. They looked a little silly, but they got lots of grain back home. And they remembered the next time to bring their bucket. And so what Jesus is saying here, not only will God, when you are generous to others, not only will he be generous to you and fill up the fold in your garment, As you're holding it, he's going to pack it down. He's going to press it down. And he's going to pour some more. And he's going to press that down and pour in some more. And press that down. And he's going to keep doing this over and over until it's overflowing. You are going to have so much blessing from God, you won't be able to hold it all. That's what God will do as you are generous to others. So look at that verse again with that historical backdrop in mind. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I love how Matthew Henry speaks about this verse. He writes, If we in a right manner give to others when they need, God will incline the hearts of others to give to us when we need and to give liberally, good measure, pressed down, Shaken together, they that sow plentifully shall reap plentifully. When God recompenses, he recompenses abundantly. Isn't that good? You cannot outgive God, can you? You cannot outgive God. He always, when we act in generosity, will respond by being more generous to us than we were to others. We serve an awesome, generous God, don't we? So when we talk around here about being generous givers, whether it's time, being generous with your time, or being generous with your talents that God has given you, or being uh, generous with your tithes, or generous with the finances God has blessed you with. We can do that in good conscience around here, talking about being generous, because we know full well, as we are generous to God and His people, as we are generous to those in need, as we are generous, God will return to you even more generosity, won't He? So it's never a problem encouraging other Christians to be generous because God will always outgive even the most generous Christian. That's the kind of God we serve. Look at verses 39 and 40. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Can a Blind man lead a blind man. Now, all of us understand that when someone doesn't have their sight, blind people can do most of what you and I can do, right? Blind people can be incredibly independent. 
They can walk to the store, walk to work. They can get back and forth. Blind people are amazingly adaptive without their eyesight in this sighted world of ours. But at the same time, even if we would go as far as to say a blind person can do 90 to 95% of what a sighted person can do, even if we were to go that far, we would never say if we were going to hike Yosemite, I'm going to hire a blind wilderness guide. We would never do that, would we? I'm going to take a flight to Denver next summer because we're taking our teen mission team to Colorado Springs. We're flying to Denver and then driving down to Colorado Springs from there. I would never go to Southwest and request a blind pilot. There are certain things a blind person can never do, and Jesus points out one of them here. If you are going through treacherous territory, you would not have a blind guide because you're both going to end up in a pit, right? The blind cannot lead the blind. And we spiritually are blind. We need someone who is spiritually sighted to lead us where we could never go on our own, where we could never go successfully if we didn't have Jesus Christ guiding us. And so what is Jesus saying to his disciples here? Remember, he's just chosen the minutes earlier, those 12 apostles. And as he chose his 12 apostles and, and took them down the mountain and began teaching them these teachings in the Sermon on the Plain, he wanted them to understand, right now you guys are dealing with some spiritual blindness. But you keep spending time with me. You allow me to disciple you. You allow me to teach you. And over time, you are going to be like your teacher. Because one day, after I resurrect from the grave, I'm going to be with you 40 more days, and then I'm going back to heaven. And when I go back to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit down to be with you. And as He fills you, you are going to be like your teacher, and you're going to carry on the ministry, and you will be those guides that you desire to be. So Jesus is grooming His teachers, His disciples, I should say, grooming them to become teachers. Verses 41 and 42 Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How many of you realize that Jesus had a great sense of humor? How many of you realize that what I just read for you is really, really funny? You realize that? Jesus is teaching this huge crowd, and he probably looks around and he finds a plank. Oh, here's one. And Jesus proceeds to hold it up to his head. I've always wanted to be a unicorn. He holds it up to his head, puts it on his eyeball here, and he says, Hey, why are you looking? Uh Uh-oh, I see it. Robert, Robert, let me get that speck out of your eye. Let me get it out. Let me get it out. Just a minute. I'm sorry. I'm about to hit your wife. About to hit your wife. Let me get it out of your eye. And all the while, you've got the... Oh, David, I see it over there. Let me get past you, Eric. Let me get past you. I see that in your eye. Let me get that for you, David. Looking over here, oh, oh, we've got it, Sandra, Sandra, I see something, oh, back at the booth, I see something in Javier's eye, and imagine Jesus, he's lugging this thing around, whacking people in the head, back and forth, and this crowd is dying of laughter. 
They've never seen a guy teach like this. My rabbi back in my hometown, he's boring. This Jesus, I get it, what he's saying. He's got this plank in his eye, and he says, don't be looking for the speck of sawdust. Don't be whacking someone upside the head with the plank in your own eye. What does he say we need to do? First, look in the mirror. Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother with the speck of sawdust in his eye. He was a very imaginative teacher, very funny teaching at times. People were laughing as Jesus was sharing this, but the truth sunk in, didn't it? He was saying, don't be hypocrites. Don't be hypocrites. It's so easy to spot faults in others and sometimes so difficult to see them in ourselves. Let me give you a few quotes that really helped me allow this teaching to sink in as I was preparing this last week. Leon Morris, he says this, The slight imperfection in other people is often more apparent to us than the large one in ourselves. Isn't that so true? Sometimes the little speck of sawdust in a a brother is so much clearer to us than our own problems, our own sins. Warren Wiersbe writes it this way. He says, we must be honest with ourselves. We must admit the blind spots in our lives. The obstacles that blur our vision and the areas within that must be corrected. Then we can be used of the Lord to minister to others and not lead them astray. That really resonated with me. We have blind spots, don't we? It's like we go through life with blinders and those blinders, why do they put those on horses? Because it keeps them from seeing stuff with their peripheral vision that would distract them. So blinders in certain situations can be really, really helpful. They help you focus on what's ahead. But the problem when we wear blinders in regard to our own sins is that it it blocks us from seeing ourselves as Jesus wants us to see ourselves. And we don't see those things that need correction in us. We have these blind spots. We don't see what he wants us to see. It doesn't feel good to hear, but it's true. Every single one of us has blind spots in our lives. There are shortcomings and even sins in us that we tend to miss. And sometimes these shortcomings and sins are glaringly apparent to everyone around us, but not to us. Jesus teaches us here to first look in the mirror before we even think about sifting through others' shortcomings and sins. We must first get our own house in order. A wise man once said this, Because there is so much bad in the best of us and so much good in In the worst of us, it ill becomes any of us to find fault with the rest of us. Isn't that good? Even in the worst of us, there's a lot of good. Even in the best of us, there's a lot of evil and sin. So it behooves us to make sure we don't spend our lives finding fault with everyone else. Jesus says, look in the mirror. Verses 43 through 45, he starts talking about fruit. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. No, neither does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from, uh, from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks great passage there. Here in these verses, Jesus points out some simple realities. We don't need a Ph.D. in horticulture to understand what Jesus points out here, some simple truths of of nature. We all know 
having never taken a horticulture class that a completely rotten tree cannot grow very healthy apples. A completely rotten tree cannot grow big juicy plums. It can't happen. We don't have to own a hundred acre orchard to understand that a grapevine would never grow bananas. And an apple tree would never grow plums. It can't happen. Jesus' point is that if you are a true follower of His, your actions will prove it. But if you're just giving Jesus lip service, sooner or later your fruit will betray you. If you're just giving Jesus lip service, just like with Gandhi, many non-Christians will over time see that you're talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk. I hope that you and I can both be Christians who walk the walk. I like how William Barclay says it. He says, the only way to prove the superiority of Christianity is to show by our lives it produces better men and better women. When I was a teenager and a young adult, I loved to study apologetics. Apologetics is the the study of defending our faith. And so I at one point was studying books on scientific apologetics, uh, how to look at the universe and what we've discovered in recent years about the universe and quasars and planetary formation and all that stuff, how to use what we've discovered in astrophysics to prove the existence of God and the accuracy of Scripture. I'd like to study in those days uh, other books and, and resources on apologetics to be able to effectively defend the Bible to a Mormon or to a Jehovah's Witness or to an atheist or to an agnostic. And so I love studying apologetics. And one thing I think Jesus is revealing to us here in verses 40 through three, 43 through 45, something that William Barclay, I think, identifies in this quote, is that ultimately all of the intellectual arguments... For Jesus Christ, the truth of Scripture, and the truth of salvation in Christ, ultimately all of those intellectual arguments will only have a limited effect on those that reject Jesus Christ. Because most people who reject Jesus Christ don't have an intellectual barrier to accepting Him. More times than not, they have a Christian barrier. You know what I mean? More times than not, they have a Christian barrier. It's not the intellectual dissonance. It's the dissonance that is called out so clearly in that Gandhi quote, the dissonance between what I see in Christ and what I see in Christ's followers. And I've never seen Christ with my own eyes. I've never heard Christ with my own ears. I've never experienced Christ in my lifetime. But what I have heard is what comes out of the mouths of Christians. What I have seen is what I've seen in Christians. What I have experienced is experiencing living day-to-day with Christians. And what I see, what I hear, and what I experience in Christians is completely dissonant from what I see in Jesus. So I don't want Jesus. This quote, I don't know about you, but this really resonates with me. The only way to prove the superiority of Christianity is to show by our lives it produces better men and better women. You see, when it comes down to it, when non-Christians have a Christian barrier, and it is Christians that keep them from accepting Christ, that's not on Him. That's on us. That's on us. I want you to chew on this. If Jesus supposedly gives us a a better heart because He offers us a better salvation, and if Jesus supposedly offers us 
better priorities and better teaching than we might get, say, in Buddhism or Mormonism or or in the Watchtower magazine. If Jesus supposedly gives us a better mission in this life and better transformation than any religion or cult out there, then doesn't it stand at reason that Christians should be better men and women? Yeah, absolutely. The world should look at our lives and see a better kind of love. They should see a better kind of grace, a a better truth, a better peace, a better hope, a better influence on this broken world. And the world should look at Christians and see a better kind of joy. But so often what the world sees in Christians are judgmental stick-in-the-muds. There's something wrong, and Jesus says we need to work with Him to fix it. Jesus Christ, do you really believe that He is a better Savior than any other so-called Savior out there? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus' transformation in a man or woman's life is so much greater and better than any other transformation offered by Buddha, Gandhi, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, John Travolta and Tom Cruise in the Church of Scientology. Do you really believe that Jesus offers a better transformation? Do you? Then certainly we should be better men and women. Certainly our front rows should be filled with better teenagers because we serve a better Savior. And if we are not better in some qualitative, tangible, visible, audible, experiential way, That's not on Him. That's on you and me. Verses 46 through 49, Jesus finishes His sermon by saying, Why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what He is like who comes to Me and hears My words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Verse 46 contains one of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked during His ministry. The question is, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you do not do what I say. Many people are willing to receive Jesus as their Savior. Yeah, I want to accept you as my Savior because I don't want to go to hell. I'll accept you as my Savior because I want to be saved from my sins. But many who are willing to accept Jesus as their Savior are unwilling to accept Him as their Lord. They don't want Jesus to be in the driver's seat of their lives. They don't want Jesus to be the boss. They don't want Him to be the jefe. They don't want Him to be the master. They don't want Him to tell Him what to do. They want to do what they want to do. I'll accept you as my Savior, but not as my Lord. And Jesus makes it so clear in His teaching, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot accept Jesus as your Savior and reject Him as your Lord, because if you reject Him as your Lord, you have also rejected Him as your Savior. Jesus says you have to have both. That's why when we leave someone in the good confession, we ask them to make it clear they're accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The two go hand in hand. Jesus 
shares another parable in verses 47 through 49. The Jews in Israel would have understood very clearly what Jesus was saying here. Over the centuries that the Jewish people had lived in Palestine, they understood this well, those who had heard the horror stories of building. Because every once in a while you'd find some Yahoo that decided to build his home for his family in the spring or the early summer. And they'd be looking for the perfect land, and they would go out and they would see a perfectly flat area with some beautiful sand. And, and they would look around, and there were mountains off in the distance, and the water source wasn't too far away. And they would say to themselves, this is the perfect place to build my house. And so there in the late spring, or early summer, they would build their house. And throughout the summertime, they were having a good old time with their family. Their kids would build the sandcastles. They were having a grand old time. And then what happened when the September rains came down? When the September rains would come in Palestine, they quickly discovered that this wasn't a nice, sandy, safe place to build a home. What it was, in fact, was a riverbed. And what was completely dry in the late spring and early summer became floodwaters in September, October, and November. Over the years, the Jewish people had heard these stories about people that weren't wise builders building on the sand in a riverbed and their house would be completely washed away. And Jesus says the wise man does what? He builds his house on the rock. It's maybe not as pretty around his yard, It takes a lot more effort to lay that foundation and dig into that rock foundation to make sure it's secure. But you better believe over time that house built on the rock is going to stand. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is this. Many people in this world are short-sighted. They're only looking at the spring and summer. They're only looking at what's right in front of them and what looks good today. Jesus says most people in this world are short-sighted. Their decisions are focused on the here and now, and they don't think through the long-term consequences of their decisions. That's one of the greatest tragedies of the teenage and young adult years. It's so common for young people to only live for today and not think about the long-term consequences, whether it's who they choose to date, whether they choose, who they choose to have sexual relations with, how they choose to spend their money, and how many people are suffering the ill effects for decades of choices they made in the short term as teenagers or young adults. Jesus says wise men and women will never barter future good for present pleasure. Blessed is the man who lives not in the light of the moment, but lives in the light of eternity. Just as it's foolish to make a decision today that could devastate the rest of your life, it's even more foolish to live this life for myself in the moment and sacrifice all of eternity and the bliss that awaits me in heaven if I follow Jesus Christ during this life here on earth. I want to finish with five wonderful little tidbits I want you to walk away with today. And I'm going to answer each of these five kind of as the close to this sentence. If you really want to live like Jesus, here are five things to keep in mind. If you really want to live like Jesus, number one, walk the walk. 
Take the initiative to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you and treat others as you'd like to be treated. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think that's one of the main points Jesus Christ wanted us to understand today. We've got to walk the walk. We can't just talk the talk. We've got to be living out the golden rule. Not just refraining from murdering or slapping or hitting or flipping off someone we don't like. It's easy to carry out the negative form of the golden rule. We've got to step it up and carry it out in its positive form. We've got to start loving on those that we can't stand. We've got to start blessing and praying for those that drive us up the wall. We've got to be considerably better at loving people than the world is at loving people. When our city comes to us and says, hey, we need some help with warming shelter for the homeless, Christians should be the first to volunteer. When others come to us and say, we've got this need, we've had this natural disaster, could, could you help? You know, we just need some extra sets of hands. Christians should be the first to volunteer. When we find out that our next door neighbor has a need, and it's irritating, and it's annoying, and it's dirty, and it's smelly, and it's messy, we should be the first to volunteer because we love with a higher kind of love than anyone else out there because we follow a Savior who is a much better Savior. Number two, if you really want to live like Jesus, nitpick your own faults, not others' faults. God has not appointed you to judge others, but to lovingly point them to Christ. Now, I don't presume to tell you that this is easy. It is not easy to call out sin as sin. It is not easy in this world we live in to point out in a loving way that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. It's not easy in this world we live in to point out to a boyfriend and a girlfriend living together that premarital sex is against God. And according to the Word of God says, if we continue in that lifestyle, it leads to a separation from God in eternity. It's not easy to say that in a loving way. It's not easy in a loving way to share with our non-Christian friends that the Bible equates abortion with murder. How do we do that in a loving way? It's not easy. But it can be done. As we follow in Jesus' footsteps, we speak the truth but we speak the truth in love and we never put ourselves in a position where we presume to be judge and jury and the convictors of those who are sinning around us. Number three, be generous with your time. Be generous with your talents. Be generous with your treasures. If you really want to live like Jesus, we cannot avoid this third way to be like Jesus. We have to be generous. There's no other way. We have to be generous because we serve a generous Savior. If you want to live like Jesus lived, you have to be generous. Don't just help someone out that needs a little bit of help. Help them the extra mile. Don't just watch the dog for a day. Volunteer to watch that stupid, ugly, smelly dog for three days. If someone needs five bucks to have some gas to make it home today, give them ten or twenty so they can get back to church the next two times as well. Be generous. Be generous just like Jesus. Number four, if you really want to live like Jesus, don't just call Him Lord. Obey Him as Lord. Do what He tells you to do. He's the boss. He calls the shots. 
Once again, if you want Jesus to be your Savior, but do not want Him to be your Lord, you are saying you do not want Him to be your Savior either. The two go hand in hand. And if you're calling Him Lord, that means Master, that means Boss, that means Hefe, that means Leader. He's calling the shots. Hefe is one of my favorites, yes. Number five, resist the temptation to make decisions for short-term pleasure. Make your decisions in the light of eternity. If you want to live like Jesus, resist the temptation to make short-term pleasure decisions. Teenagers, I can't tell you how much my heart would just leap and your parents' hearts would be so thrilled if you guys continue to consistently carry out number five here. If we can get to that point, whether we're 16 or 56 or 86 years old, If we could get to the point where we're not living for today, but living for eternity. Keeping in mind that old bumper sticker that says, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And when they made that bumper sticker, they made it because of that old hymn that said the exact same thing. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven ain't my home... Then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open shore. And I don't feel at home in this world anymore. We live not for this moment here on earth because this moment is so temporary. We live with eternity in mind. Friends, if we will live this upside-down, topsy-turvy life that Jesus Christ has called us to live. It will transform this world for Jesus Christ. There will be a fresh magnetism to Christianity that our world doesn't experience right now. There's going to be an attractiveness to coming to church that most non-Christians do not feel now. Mormons who went to their church not because they agreed with the doctrine and the theology, but simply because I never met anyone nicer than that Mormon young man that knocked on my door. His white shirt was nicely pressed. It was perfectly clean. He was the most polite young man I've ever seen. And his elder badge was even straight. I'm not a Mormon because I think their doctrine is great. It's simply because I've never met anyone nicer than those Mormons. But if all of a sudden the world is seeing that Christians, you know what, Mormons are pretty nice people, but those Christians, they're a lot nicer. I've been loved by the Buddhists. But I've never been more loved than when I've been around those Christians. If we will live this upside-down, topsy-turvy life that Jesus Christ describes in Luke chapter 6, it will transform this world. And we will see literally millions of people come to a saving knowledge of Christ that in the past didn't, not because of an intellectual barrier, but because of a Christian barrier. Jesus Christ has done His part. Let's do our part to follow in His footsteps and live as He lived. Lord Jesus, thank You for setting that perfect example for us of how to live, how to love, how to forgive, how to go the extra mile. Lord Jesus, may we follow in Your footsteps. No, it won't be easy, but we can do it with the strength of the Holy Spirit living inside of us for Your honor and glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You ready to live an upside-down life? Ready to live a topsy-turvy life for Jesus Christ? Okay, You've been doing it to a large extent, I know. But let's step it up and live it even more.
for the glory of God and for the transformation of this world we live in. Let's go ahead and stand right now. If you need prayer, we're going to pray for you. We're going to have some prayer leaders up here in front. Skip, I think, is going to be in back. You come to one of us if you need prayer. We've got uh, one man came today to be baptized. That's awesome. His baptism is going to be in a few minutes. Maybe you have that same decision to make. You need to be baptized. Maybe you need to make a first-time decision for Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to rededicate your life if you've been backsliding a bit. Whatever that decision may be. Gary's up here. Yolanda's up here. Got Art over on the side. You come to one of us. We'd love to talk to you about getting right with Jesus and leaving this place washed fresh and new with the grace of Jesus Christ covering you today. You come if you need prayer. You come if you have a decision to make for Christ.
Hello, everyone. Um, I want to thank you for having us here today. This is my uh, brother-in-law, uh, Fadi. Uh, today, he wanted to take a, a stance for 